So who is this Jesus? He's the one who enables us, makes it possible for us to know this good, good father. A father that we continually will see is also a very benevolent, an extravagantly benevolent good father. The psalmist in 118 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. We'll see the benevolence of God in today's scripture. We can experience the extravagant benevolence of God right here again today because God is present with us. And that is his desire. No matter what we are facing, we can experience God, our heavenly father, a good, good father in very personal ways. Now, one of the areas and ways that I am very thankful to God, that I've experienced his benevolent goodness, is food. If you are new, hi, my name's Tom Dabasinskis, and I am an unabashed foodie. I enjoy food. Doesn't need to be fancy. It just needs to be good food, and lots of it, preferably. I enjoy eating, and so it was no surprise that when I saw a certain book called Eat This and Not That, it got my attention. In this book, it compares and contrasts different foods and says, okay, this is the healthy choice amidst those. And so, yeah, I was a little bit interested for myself, but I thought, okay, for my kids, this would be a great book to help them know how to make healthy choices. Now, this book compares all types of food. So if you're going grocery shopping, anywhere from yogurt to pizza, they'll give you input on what's the healthy choice there as they compare and contrast those two things. Going out to eat, whether you're at Jamba Juice or you're at Dairy Queen, they give you advice on what the healthy choices are. So Dairy Queen, I'm thinking, this is great. When I opened up and saw that, I'm like, this is very practical for my family, you see, because we are a family that loves Dairy Queen. When we moved here to Renton, uh, when our kids came and saw the house and found out that our house was less than a mile from a Dairy Queen, they're like, sold. We got to get this house. That's great. They just love it, right? So as I turned to this, was uh, interested to see what they were going to say. And I got to admit, as I read this, um, I was also a little bummed because the very thing that they hit on is one of my favorites of not to eat is the blizzard. Okay? They say a small blizzard has 470 calories, 14 grams of fat, and 62 grams of sugar. And at this point, I'm really bummed because I've never had a small blizzard in my life. <laughs> I just go for the, the biggest that they can make with as much of that stuff that's not good for you in there. So at this point, in hearing this, I'm really bummed, okay? So I'm thinking, okay, what are they going to tell me? That I need to just like find the carrots on the menu and order carrots instead of this? Good news, no. Their recommendation is that you have a strawberry Sunday, small, which has half the calories, half the fat, and half the sugars. And I'm thinking, I can do this. And as you know, you go on and read it, it has all these different comparisons and contrasts, making the point, choose the healthy thing. Well, in the book of Mark, he employs a similar, similar literary technique of comparing and contrasting to make significant points. And we see it again here in chapter 12. If you're one of those literary types, you'll know it's called a chiasm, okay? It's a literary technique to compare and contrast to make the significant point. Not to worry, I'm going to draw your attention to where those are. You don't need to be a literary expert. I wasn't. I had to look online for some of those to know that, right? 
But I do need your help and do want you to do this. Is at the end of the sermon, I'm going to get some input from you. And here's what I'd like you to do. As we walk through the scripture, be prayerfully thinking and asking God, what is the significant point of these comparisons and these contrasts? And I want you to write down one sentence that captures that significant point in a personal way for you. Okay, and then we get to the end of the sermon, I'm gonna say, all right, what is your sentence? What is that significant point being made by these comparisons and contrasts? Are you with me? I see a couple, all right, all those nodding, you'll be the people that will particularly expect to hear from. Thank you for doing that. So if you haven't already, turn with me now to Mark chapter 12. And here we're going to see these comparisons and contrasts start first between two people that they're looking at. One is an esteemed scribe and the other is a poor widow. Now scribes at the time of Jesus were people who had the knowledge of the religious uh, laws and input from scripture, from the Torah and whatnot. And then they would draft religious documents or legal documents in different ways. So it is this type of people that Jesus mentions first as we look there at verse 38. Are you there on your Bible or on your uh, electronic device? And in his teaching, he, meaning Jesus, said, beware of the scribes. Okay, so this is the do not eat. You know, don't do this one. Who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater combination. Jesus is saying, beware of these people. He's not saying, note, he's not saying despise these people, but avoid the trap that they've fallen into. That they're after, what they're focused on in life is all about power and prestige. And it's a trap that does have consequences. There is a greater condemnation. Jesus is saying, don't be like them. Don't eat, feast on what they're feasting on, okay? Then Jesus contrasts this with a woman that he sees as he's sitting there. Look at verse 41. It says, he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many people put in a large sum. And then a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to about a, a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, she has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus, in highlighting this woman and saying this is what you're to be about, not like those scribes, is challenging the commonly held values of a society not too much different as it is today, that people say it's all about power, it's all about prestige, what people think. We as a society oftentimes would look down like they would on someone who is poor, maybe even overlook that type of person. Instead, Jesus says, no, pay attention, emulate her. She has found something very good. She has the better attitude and focus. She has given extravagantly, generously. And I'm thinking that she's doing this as I read this because she's discovered an extravagantly benevolent God. 
and her heart and her life are surrounded, surrendered to that. What she's doing is, is in response to that. Jesus says, be like her. Eat, feast on what she's feasting on. Now as I look out, I'm seeing many women who I know and who are not unlike this widow and giving all that they are to everything they're about, be it their vocation, be it their family from the moment of changing diapers to how they're uh, serving their family, making food, cleaning, doing all sorts of different things. These are people who are loving, praying, serving, people in their community, in this church. And I know that as you serve in those ways, there can be a little part of you that thinks, it doesn't feel like it adds up to much. Is it really worth it? And hear Jesus say, it is. You matter. Who you are is invaluable. Listen to him when he says, you've put in more than the rest. Because what you've put in is a heart that's surrendered to God and says, all right, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I'll gladly do that. You are to be esteemed. So happy Mother's Day to those of you that are mothers here as well. And men, go today and make sure, whether it's the spouse next to you, whether it's your own mother, you let them know that they're esteemed and loved and valued. All right, so we've seen a comparison and contrast here. What do you think the significant point is? Are you thinking of that sentence as your literary mind and spiritual hearts are warming up and maybe with all this talk of food, maybe your stomachs are warming up as well. Let's continue to look at the scripture. Look now at the beginning of Mark 12. Look at verses one through 12 with me. As your eyes are going up there, here's a little context. Jesus has been humbly and sacrificially serving for three years, okay? Three years serving in different ways. And he, like this widow, is about to make a big time Sacrifice. He's entering into Jerusalem, and as he has entered into Jerusalem, the previous chapter tells us that people were laying down palm branches like they would for royalty or a political king that was coming in, just laying these all down before him and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Not a word we use today, but for them, they would remember the Hebrew context, which means, please save us. Please save us. It's a, it's a cry for mercy. Okay, that they're crying out saying, save us. And also in that day, uh, scholars tell us that that cry for mercy, they also experienced salvation. And so there was also this sense of which they're saying, salvation has come. See this guy coming in? That's our salvation. He's the one that can bring it for us. They're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And think about what's going on for these religious leaders who are already bumping into Jesus, not happy with what he's teaching, trying to you know, discredit him in different ways and pretty soon are going to come out just all out attack on him. What do you think they're thinking? I could just see them going, what? Oh no, this is not good. You know, as all eyes turn to Jesus instead of them or crying out to Jesus, save us. You can kind of begin to imagine the chagrin they must be feeling as this was happening, probably even to the point of where anger is starting to boil up inside of them. And then think about those people crying out, Hosanna. Some of those very same people that are say, yelling, save us, would join with the Pharisees in yelling in a couple of days, crucify him, crucify him. Ah, the fickle nature of the human heart a heart that Jesus knows, a heart that Jesus cares about. So he begins to teach in ways that will speak to their hearts and our hearts. 
in hopes that people will receive the salvation that they need, that they turn from their own proclivities, turn and trust Jesus. Verse 1 says, And he, meaning Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. And this parable goes, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower, and then he leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, at this time, most of the Jordan Valley and large parts of Galilee were owned by foreigners. The land there owned by foreigners. And so what was happening here was a common practice. They'd go find someone who would take care of their land, and then they would go to a foreign country. And did you notice the extravagance of this landowner? This landowner who has a vineyard, a very nice place, has then built a fence around it as well. Not only a fence, but has a pit for a wine press as well. And then a tower, a tower where if they wanted to get out during the summer, another place for them to live, but also a tower that would protect the vineyard from anything that might come in. And he's saying, here you go. It's yours. You catching that extravagance that's there? Let's read again uh, in verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tents to get from them some of the fruit in the vineyard. And they took the person and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Well, again, the landowner sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. So he sends another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Still, the landowner had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants, they said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance is going to be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. See the contrast here? There's this benevolent, long-suffering landowner. There are these greedy, cruel tenants. And now here comes further comparison. Verse 10. Jesus says to them after the parable, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in his eyes. And it says that the Pharisees were seeking to arrest him but feared the people. They're like, enough of this, let's take this guy. But they're concerned about what others think, not surprising. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they'd left him and went away. Earlier we read in in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus said there would be people who would see but never perceive. They would hear parables and teachings like this and never understand. And this was true for the religious leaders to this point where they're beginning to understand and they're not liking what they're hearing. Their defenses are going up. They're ready to plot something differently because they realize that the greedy, cruel tenants talked about here, that's them. That this benevolent landowner, this very long-suffering landowner is God. The servants who are beaten and killed, well, they can look back and remember how God's servants were treated all throughout the Old Testament, even in their recent history, godly leaders and how they were treated. The beloved son, they're starting to piece things together here and they're going, this is Jesus. He's telling this parable about himself. And sure enough, they would be people who would put Jesus to death 
in just a few days. This very person that they were rejecting, the very person that they needed the most, was the cornerstone being highlighted, being talked about in the scriptures. Now, a cornerstone, what's the significance of a cornerstone? If you were to go into Seattle, today you see these huge, massive buildings, and if you look at the very bottom, oftentimes, there's a stone, a very big stone in the corner, bigger than some of the others. It might have a plaque, sometimes an inscription on it, right? And that is the cornerstone of that building. It's where two walls converge. It's a key thing, not only in holding up those two walls, but it also, one-fourth of the building rests on that. And as I've talked to people in the construction world, they said, that initial thing that you're setting there with your foundation is important to get the whole foundation straight. And if the foundation ain't straight, the walls ain't straight, it's just going to be bad. So that stone is super, super important. Now, similarly, in Jesus' day, they would find a key big stone, sturdy stone, that was the basis for everything that was going to be built. Jesus is saying, I'm that cornerstone. Everything is built by and upon who I am. The blessings of knowing a benevolent God that comes when your life is resting on me, surrendered, trusting in me. But the Pharisees, they're beginning to hear and perceive and understand, but rather than respond faithfully, they're ready to cast this stone away. Matter of fact, put this one to death. Now Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 118. Psalm 118, we'll have up on the screen here in just a moment. Psalm 118, that in these previous verses, we find out this is a person also crying out for help. In some of the previous verses, it says, The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. They're going through a difficult time. They're crying out to God, and we see that then in verse 19. It says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. They're like blind Bartimaeus from last week, right? Someone who's blind but really sees and understands and perceives and then is crying out for the mercy that that God longs to give. Yeah. May I enter through them and give thanks. Uh, uh, open me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I'm like, well, okay, what's the gate? What's the critical thing here? Verse 21. I thank you that you have answered me and you have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Instead of rejecting, overlooking, or misunderstanding Jesus, this psalmist understands and is inviting Jesus to be that cornerstone, is trusting and resting in who Christ is, who God is. And Jesus is telling this parable in hopes that people with hardened hearts would not only understand, but come to trust him for their salvation, to trust him with all that they are. Now, it's easy at this part in the story to start to judge the people who are fickle and start yelling, crucify him later. Very people say, save us, yell, crucify. Or maybe you're feeling, you know, those religious leaders, what a bunch of jerks. What's their problem, Right? A couple of you chuckling, so maybe I'm not the only one that has thoughts like that when I read this, right? Well, as we do that, I'd say to myself and to us, let's be careful that we don't miss the log in our own eyes. Let's keep in mind that the religious people of today could very well be us, right? Remember, it wasn't only the religious leaders, but some of Jesus' closest disciples who let him down, 
who denied him like Peter, right? Peter, who had been with Jesus for three years, experiencing the miracles, seeing all that he'd done, all of a sudden gets out when time is tough, is met by people saying, aren't you with him? Nope, nope. Denies Jesus, not once, but three different times. Knows the benevolence and the goodness of Jesus, yet when faced with hard times, when faced with public opinion that goes uh, in a different direction, denies him three times. And it's not only Peter, but then Judas. Judas, the one who finds himself more interested in the gold and the money and securing for himself in this fearful time some semblance of security, goes for the money and betrays Jesus. So we would be wise to personally reflect on this parable. Where maybe have we lost sight of the benevolence that God has extended to us? Where are we in feeling maybe even entitled that God would act in the ways that we want God to act? That our desires must be God's desires and we must get those immediately. Where do we in fear and insecurity instead of looking to Jesus as our cornerstone look to power, prestige, what people think, the possessions that we have to feel more secure. You know, as long as sin remains in our lives, and it will, till we meet Jesus face to face, the power of sin has been broken. Now the question is, what do we do when we face it daily? See, every day there is this troubling mix of this pull to follow our agenda and then trust God's agenda. There is this kingdom of God and this kingdom of self that are at war within us. And this kingdom of self that says, this is what I want, this is how it should be, where we're all in control, that is some of the most heavily guarded territory in our lives. We do everything we can to fortify this. We want to be successful so people will think well of us, right? We want to have possessions and, and prestige so we'll feel more secure in this kingdom of self. And if we, like the Pharisees, begin to feel that it's threatened in any way, well, we have defenses that we can put up. We'll try harder, right? We'll show people that we're really good people by what we do, and we'll just work hard at that, make sure that they know that we are good people, right? And then there's this, this battle where we can end up looking a lot like the Pharisees, more focused on the rules and what we should do or not do instead of the relationship. Where we can trust our, our behavior and how we measure up versus the God that we know. And Jesus is teaching in a way that's inviting the people to surrender their kingdom of self for his kingdom. To surrender their will for his goodwill. Jesus is teaching a parable because he wants to get in beneath those defenses, those places where we feel insecure, those places where we want to put up our defenses. He wants to heal and speak into those places that we feel most shame and embarrassment about. Jesus says, will you let me love you there as well? Because I do. And I can make a difference as you trust me in those areas. I will bring salvation and goodness in the midst of those places. Will we do that? Will we trust Christ in these ways? I admitted earlier that, that I was a foodie. In case you missed, there was also a confession in that as well. Some of you might remember I've said in other sermons how when I'm feeling hurt, when I'm feeling insecure, stuff didn't go well in my day, 
I love to go to the fortified place of my pantry and just eat everything that I know is not recommended in the book. Okay? Chips, all the better. Yes, outside is the fridge. Ice cream, wonderful. Lots and lots of that. And I find myself just gorging to the place where eventually I'm like, oh, why did I do that? And start to think of some of the ways of why I did that. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to go there. That's too embarrassing. So go to sleep, wake up, do the next day over. And then a couple days later, find myself back in the pantry, just eating. When this first happened years and years ago, I, I did. I, I felt shame as I started to think, what did I just do? And why did I do that? And refused to go there, refused to say, God, what, what, what do you make of this? Help me make sense of this. Help me understand what's going on. But as I did, I began to see something at the time that I was embarrassed to admit to anyone. I definitely wouldn't put a microphone on in front of people in a minute, but I've seen the power of confession and God changing a heart that I can say to you, part of what was going on for me is I was more concerned about what other people thought about me. I was more concerned on seeing people seeing me as the person who had it together, who had the, the right answers, that was successful, that good things were going on. I was more interested in that than being a child of God. And my identity was focused in the wrong ways, focused in uh, everything I've just shared instead of focusing on that. And that's why some of those things were so painful. The kingdom itself for me was being attacked and invaded. My identity in and of just myself was feeling threatened. So I just worked harder. Tried to say, hey, I'm an okay person versus saying, God, I need your help. <laughs> God, thank you that I'm a child of yours. Help me live more from that place and trust it in every interaction and thing that I do. And praise God, he is gradually continuing that good work in my heart, helping me do that. See, this is what Jesus wants to do. This is why he's telling these parables to these people. It's not so that they're going to walk away angry and everything. He's trying to help them see, holding up the mirror to them, saying this is what's going on in a way that they can hear, in a way that they would trust Jesus, as a way that they would look to Jesus for their own lives instead of putting up those defenses. He's inviting them to reflect on what's going on in their hearts and to repent. Not to respond out of shame or guilt, but out of a conviction. A conviction that <laughs> eating yourself till you're sick to the stomach in the pantry is not the best option. <laughs> conviction that trying to live life according to the fickle opinions of people, not really good. Trying to base our, our lives on the fallible foundation of prestige or possessions, also not good. But trusting the cornerstone, trusting the one who's made all things, who continually brings life, who is the foundation for life itself, our lives, is the best thing we can do? Good choice. Later in this chapter, Jesus clearly highlights what it means to trust him completely. Look at verse 28. Says another one of these scribes came up and heard the people disputing with one another and seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked Jesus. He says, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is this. And here he's quoting from Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. So important stuff. 
Jesus said, okay, you don't need to read the whole book. Here it is, condensed fashion for you, right? Eat this, do this. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. So I invite you to take a moment right now and pause. What's the condition of your life in these areas? How's your heart today as you come here? Is your heart desiring things other than God? Do you have desires you're demanding more than desiring that relationship with God and enjoying that relationship? How about the state of our souls? What are we looking to for our salvation with whatever we're facing? Be it that hurt and pain, be it that difficult thing, be it just our very lives. Are we trying on our own? Are we more concerned about what people think making us feel good? Are we trusting Jesus? Again, I would say as we go through these, be careful that you don't slide into feeling shame and guilt because that's not what this is about. It's about a good father saying to you, will you let me love you more? Will you experience more of my love in every area of your life? How about the condition of our minds? What's, what were our thoughts occupied throughout the day? As you look back over the last week, were you taking time to notice and celebrate this benevolent good God and all he's doing in your life? Or were you focused on more of what wasn't happening according to what you would hope would happen? Instead of trusting God, maybe you were trying to just make, make it by on, on your own strength or own wisdom. And how about our strength? Do our actions reflect our faith in Jesus? Would people say there's someone who's loving God with all their strength? The passage says that the scribes believed what Jesus said was correct. And, they respond, and Jesus responds to the scribe in verse 34, and he says, Jesus saw that he, the scribe, answered wisely and said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. The scribe has an openness to what the truth of Scripture is and what Jesus is saying. He has this powerful, positive orientation towards God and disposition there. It's kind of like Jesus saying, hey, you're heading in the direct, right direction. Keep going, okay? You're not just rejecting, but you're leaning in. Keep leaning in. Keep trusting me. Don't revert back to thinking it's all about jots and tittles and laws and legalism and doing all this. It's about a relationship out of which naturally flows these other things. And you're left wondering, what would the scribe do? Were they going to respond like the Pharisees or would they be more like that faithful widow? Would they place Jesus as the cornerstone or would they rely on something else? Those same sort of questions are before us as we hear this parable. So back to my question I began with, there's these comparisons and contrasts going on all throughout. What's the significant point that Jesus is teaching? Here's the point where we get to hear from you. Now, to take the pressure off if you're feeling any, it's not like there's just one you need to get. If you are prayerfully thinking through the scripture and have a sentence, that's a great thing. So what I'd like you to do is share it, and I'll, I'll share what God put on my heart too, but let me hear from at least a couple of you. What's the significant point in one sentence Jesus is teaching? Um, it's not what is outwardly seen by others that matters, but what is inwardly seen by God. Awesome. Someone else? Yes.
love hearing how you're processing. That's great. All right, so two moms hitting the ball out of the park. Guys, anyone? Okay, we got an, another mom. Great, and then we'll come right over here. Yes. Great sentence. Caption it. I love it. Yeah, right here. God doesn't want my best effort. He wants all of me. Wants all of me. I love it. Good work. All right. Pressure's on over to this side. Someone from this side? This side's killing it over here. How about anyone else over here praying or reading their Bibles at all? <laughs> Come on. Um, God prefers humility and obedience over outward displays of goodness. Love it. Can I adopt some of what you guys just said and not read mine? Is that, is that legal? Awesome. I love hearing your hearts as you're processing the scripture. I promised I'll do it. I said, relationship with Jesus is what's most important, not religion, because he's the cornerstone. Relationship, not religion. And Jesus has always been the cornerstone. I want to end with this scripture from John you might remember in uh, John chapter 1, it talks about the word becoming flesh. Who's it referring to there? Jesus, right. And listen to what it says about Jesus. It says, in the beginning was the word. You could say, in the beginning was Jesus. And the word, Jesus was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was nothing, not anything made that was made. In him, I love this, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, will not overcome it. This is the cornerstone. This is Jesus, always has been, always will be, that secure foundation on which we can completely, humbly trust our lives, everything that we are. People will reject to this day in Seattle, a society doesn't want to follow what he's teaching. Religious people like you and I will get distracted, but God remains faithful to who he is. And we can rest in that. We can trust a good, good father in ways that we experience and others looking on would say, the Lord is doing this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Will you join me as we close in prayer? God, again this week, we can attest to that you are a good father. We've had glimpses, we've had tastes of what that is. And God, we long to drink deeply from the reality of who you are. We long that every part of our lives wouldn't get distracted or off track with power, prestige, what people think, misplaced identity, but God, would you increasingly continue that good work you've begun in us? As your children, would you help us rest securely in that? Live more and more from that place where not just us would say it's marvelous, but others would be blessed because of that. God, I do thank you for mothers, the blessing that we've received through that. I do know for people in this room, there is hurt and pain on a day like this as well. Would you again show your benevolence and goodness to them in ways that minister to those areas of their lives? God, thanks for who you are. We do love you and we thank you for how you love us. It's in your name and for your glory we pray.